It is my intention to curb the size and influence of the federal establishment and to demand recognition of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the states or to the people. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land, we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, but we have never been unwilling to pay that price. What does it mean when we justify something as a product of its time? That's a question that's beyond the scope of this program to answer, but it should be apparent to anyone approaching the question critically that this qualification doesn't exactly, or at least shouldn't, get anyone off the hook for something they made or did or were involved with uh, back in the day or happen to be enjoying now. But there are nuances. A grandparent who uses outdated terms might still have been out in the streets marching for justice once upon a time. A well-meaning friend might ask good-faith questions with an understanding built primarily on archaic propaganda or bad-faith arguments. Alternatively, an apparent progressive may have been, upon reconsideration, simply another player in the furthering of contemporary hegemony, albeit via subversive demonstration, that we now know only furthered their own interests within said hegemony rather than dismantling the oppressive structure altogether. The most ubiquitous use of the phrase by far, though, is, of course, to hand-wave away any problematic elements of just about anything from the past that people still currently like. We sure do like to justify the things we do. And this is where we find ourselves with the Justice League of the late 1980s. We have a product of its time. <laughs> and boy, howdy, is it ever. To call the Giffen and DiMatteis run of the Justice League iconic would be a stretch. To call it iconoclastic would be closer to reality, but it would also be missing a fundamental truth. Namely, that it was in no way subversive beyond the fact that it had more slapstick than one would expect from a book with such a pedigree. We're talking just despicable amounts of gags here. I mean, it's every other fuck at once divorced from, yet foundational to, the relentless, um, humor, is the setting, which is embodied by an unsung yet inescapable phantom member of this particular Justice League. A superhero, if you will, who will eventually reveal their true nature and betray the team and bring them and everything they've ever loved crashing down. From the heavens to the pits... From sunning on the penthouse deck of success to struggling against the iron grip of failure, holding their noses and mouths beneath the piss-stained ring of the basement toilet, the Justice League of Giffen and DiMatteis is brought low by the one enemy 
They kept much, much too close. Ronald Reagan. What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future is going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's going to live forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with Lickenside or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. Picture this. The year is 1986. If we're being honest with ourselves, it's the very first year of the 1980s. The 1970s has the unique distinction of being the only 15-year decade. At least fashion-wise. So, finally, 1986. Gone are the drab earth tones of the 70s. Gone are the bell-bottoms. Gone are the concerns for humans outside of one's own mind-body. And in it, to win it, are all the things we now associate with the era. The glitzes and the glamours. The spandexes and the indexes. Indices. Spandices? While only some of the middle class are jazzercising... Contract, release, contract, release. There you go. Smiling, smiling, smiling down to the pelvis. All of them are ostracizing. Taking their cues from the recently mega-empowered neoliberal elite and metamorphosing fully into the consumerist butterflies that admin like madmen began to mold them into 20 years prior, our young, upwardly mobile creative crowd was primed to be the first of the work-hard-play-hard feedback loop between their personal and work lives and the media they consumed that justified and reinforced that. Spiritually, the American middle class grew increasingly atomized, which was ironic, because Ray Palmer wasn't a very popular character at the time. Just kidding. I have no idea about that. This is the only episode I've researched. It's actually ironic because, thanks to predatory real estate interests, slick marketing campaigns, and a pretty recently militarized police force violently removing people of color from their homes, more and more middle-class white folks were stuffing themselves back into tinier living spaces in the cities. They just didn't want to talk to, deal with, or even acknowledge each other. I happen to believe this resulted in and from another feedback loop. I don't like to give white Americans, myself included, too much credit, or really even the benefit of the doubt. But I do think that part of what kept those white people from establishing a real sense of shared community was the unacknowledged, the shameful, the unspoken understanding of how they all came to be living in their recently refurbished lofts and townhomes and condos. Pretending you can't see violence means never admitting to how you benefit from it, and that means building walls within and around yourself. These people were, after all, products of their time. But I digress. The important part for our story today is that people were buying. People were consuming. 
the acts of acquisition and conquest had become similarly atomized and then prioritized. The projected image was made paramount, and material excess was deemed to be the greatest indicator of success. None of this is new to any of you, I'm sure. This is the stereotype of the 80s, for God's sake. Expectation was high. Executives were higher. The future was glorious, and the past was dead. Nowhere was there to be heard a call for any sort of revivification of old glories or triumphs or even meaning. Well, almost nowhere. And even when that cry was heard, it lost out to the sleek inertia of corporate hegemony. Andrew Helfer, editor for the 1987 Justice League book that would become Justice League International and then Justice League Europe and Justice League America, with a conspicuous lack of of for each, wrote in the foreword to the collected volume of issues one through seven about how excited he was to finally have blessings from on high to create a return-to-form Justice League story featuring all the most classic, the most popular, the heaviest-hitting characters from the League's iconic roster. Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Aquaman, The Flash. In short, the platonic ideal of the Justice League. Any of you familiar with the eventual lineup of characters that constitute the Justice League of 1987 are probably either smirking or crestfallen right now. We'll come back to the Justice League yearbook later. For now, let's talk about the men behind the shabby curtain. And before we get started, I want to make something clear. I'm about to say some very ungenerous things about this comic. But I will come clean and say that it's not truly a bad read. It has its fun moments, and there are some genuinely good aspects of it. Kevin Maguire's art, for example, is stellar. No huge set pieces or splashy spectacles, but real and expressive close-ups. What should feel stilted and claustrophobic is, instead, intimate and kinetic. And it, more than anything else, achieves the humanism that this book in Toto strives for. The plots are anything but stagnant, and the dialogue, while wordy, actually does flow quite well. Apart from the overuse of jokes, it doesn't feel like a writer wrote it. It's, it's people talking. I'm criticizing this book from a leftist perspective. It's clear that Demetrius, who is quite active on Twitter and will no doubt hear about this because I know one of you jerks is gonna think on me, has a good heart and good intentions. It's also clear that he's a deep-in-the-trenches liberal, and that comes with baggage, with problems. So Keith, JM, if you're listening, welcome and I'm sorry. I don't have anything to offer other than my sincere hope that you won't at me on Twitter. Okay, here goes. J.M. DeMatteis and Keith Giffen. Those names should strike fear into the hearts of criminals and readers. I'm not here to tell you that they're bad people. I'm not even here to tell you that they're bad writers. I'm here to tell you that they wrote a bad comic. And not, not just one bad comic... Hundreds, hundreds of bad comics. But who are they? What's their story? Anyone who's familiar with Giffen's or DiMatteis' work will know that you rarely see one of those names without the other. 
Keith Giffen is a moderately infamous figure in comics history. He was one of DC's top-selling artists in the 80s and was, along with Roger Slifer, one of the creators of Lobo, a massively popular, long-lasting, and oft-misunderstood meta-character, if you will, who, when approached as I think he should be, serves as a sort of bellwether, or at least a reflection of the current state of the industry of superhero comics. It's not a bad idea at all. I use the term infamous because Giffen was embroiled in a swiping scandal. It's an industry term for artistic plagiarism from 1986 to 1988. And while it apparently had some effect on his career, it unfortunately was not enough to keep him off of Justice League. In fact, Justice League was essentially his idea. As Helfer tells it, for weeks prior to being given the editorial green light, Given would lean into Helfer's office and literally hiss the words Justice League to anyone who would hear, presumably Helfer. Although known primarily for his art, Giffen's recognition as a writer isn't far behind. It's unclear just exactly how much he actually wrote, though, and I don't mean that from um, the with respect to the plagiarism accusations. I mean that in his work with Demetrius, Giffen is credited with plots, while Demetrius always has his name slapped on scripts. Again, in the foreword to the collected edition of the first arc, Helfer describes how Giffen would quote freeze up at the thought of putting words or dialogue in a character's mouth. Thus, John Mark, here on out immortalized as J.M. Demetrius, was hired, and the world of forced, sterile levity was forever bolstered. To be fair, J.M. Demetrius was not, apparently, a writer known for being funny at the time he was hired to write a funny Justice League. In fact, Helfer praises Demetrius's writing for having a, quote, deep spirituality and a concern for serious human issues. And then, in an apparent moment of hilarity, Helfer told Demetrius not to use either of those strengths. As Demetrius has Guy Gardner, the Green Lantern, proclaim on the very second page of the series, Hey babe, this is the 80s. Alan Alda is out, Sylvester Stallone is in. As I've mentioned, one of the reasons I find this series so appalling is the obscene amounts of gags, of jokes, of goof-em-ups. Imagine a world where, rather than Scott Bakula, Jerry Lewis instead quantum leaps into the bodies of individuals throughout history. And then imagine that history is actually narrowed to each and every scene of Justice League, Justice League International, Justice League Europe, Justice League America, Justice League 3000, Justice League 3001, formerly known as the Justice League. I can't believe it's not the Justice League. Justice League spinoff Mr. Mirror, Justice League spinoff Blue Justice Beetle. League spinoff Booster Justice Gold, Justice League miniseries, Doctor Doom Fate. Patrol, and Larflees. Oh, and let's not forget the backup script to the Superman Top Cat crossover special, issue number one. Insufferable doesn't begin to describe it. I don't mean that every joke is a complete stinker, but let's just say I understand that, despite the ready availability of water, it's hard to quench your thirst when you're drowning. But Nat, you're screaming at your phone right now. So the book is cheesy. Who cares? 
you set up an elaborate opening to tease us with Ronald Reagan, a man we all rightly despise and would gladly dig up and kill again, only to punch us in the gut with some trite jokes about yuppies. You're right, I would counter. But don't forget the maudlin interlude about the physical and spiritual violence of gentrification that I threw in there, because that's the key to our segue. As I staple your lips shut to curtail any further interjection, let's think about the first word that comes to our minds when we hear the phrase Ronald Reagan. It's okay if it's a curse word. We're all adults here. Whatever your muffled word might be, the one that comes to my mind is enabler. Ronald Reagan, the great enabler. So what do I mean by that? And again, what does this have to do with a very bad comic book? Let's talk about the things that Reagan enabled. Reagan enabled the rich by cutting taxes on them from 74% down to 28%. He enabled massive corporations through a slew of savage industrial deregulatory measures. He further enabled the power of capital over labor by busting high-profile strikes. But let's talk about how he enabled the people. Reagan enabled the American workforce to work until they shrivel and die by beginning the raising of the full retirement age in his 1983 Social Security bill. He also enabled people by allowing them to pay twice as much in Social Security tax. Same bill. He enabled people with mental illnesses and psychological trauma to break free of their therapeutic shackles and take their struggles to the streets by slashing federal funding for medical research in the 1981 Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act. By not nuking Number 10 Downing Street, he enabled Margaret Thatcher to keep living, ranked among his greatest crimes. So how did all this high-level damage to essentially the entire world translate to an unbearable Justice League series? Well, we get to talk about commodification now. I'm sorry. For those of you who don't know, commodification is the act of turning anything, object, idea, relationship, etc., into tradable, transactionable uh, things, into anything that can be traded. It's basically what a philosopher's stone does, but for everything, and it's bad. We all know or have heard that the 80s marked a major uptick in selfishness, in consumerism, in greed. Commodification, and more precisely, Marx's idea of commodity fetishism, not a sexual fetish, is the mechanism by which this occurred. Commodity fetishism is the idea that the cost of something, the value of it, 
in relation to other things that you might trade for it is somehow inherent, somehow magical. Importantly, that value of it is in some way divorced from the reality of the work that went into making it. Imagine one of the listeners sends me a portrait of my face that they've done in macaroni art. Were I caught in the throes of commodity fetishism, again, not sexual, freaks, I would probably toss it on the ground, light it on fire, pee on it, and call the cops on whoever mailed it to me. Because it would be shit. But I'm not like that. I'm an actual human being with the understanding that the value of things is more than their material cost. And I would never, ever call the cops. This is all sort of nebulous and hard to pin down. I mean, really, how do we measure how selfish an entire country is? Well, we can't. But we have plenty of ways of measuring around that idea. And we'll get to that, but it should be noted that this isn't sweeping or all-encompassing. There have always been, and unless the communists have something to say about it, always will be people who can't afford to participate in a culture of parasitic and predatory exchange. And to be clear, the communists want that culture gone, not more people who can afford to engage with it. And there will always be people, usually communists but not every time, who recognize that system for what it is and refuse to associate with it on moral grounds, or at least strive to participate in and perpetuate it as little as possible. And to be clear, this is not an indictment on all those who do participate. Advertising is a powerful force, and it's not easy to contend with such an entrenched, ubiquitous, and well-armed adversary. Let's look at some of our evidence for this at least perceived growth in materialism, the bad kind, and self-obsession. Back in 2012, Open Democracy UK did a Google Ngram search of 5 million English language books on the occurrences of the word citizen versus consumer. I'm sure you can guess where this is going. The graph of the results show how, right around the 1980s, the word consumer overtakes citizen in frequency of appearance. We could talk about this one graph for hours, but I'll spare you since I know this is supposed to be a program about comic books, not nerd shit like math. A survey of American high school and college students from 1966 to 2009 about their life goals reveals something even more blatant. In the late 80s, which I guess is relevant, life goals in the multiple choice survey dwarfed the others. The first and most popular life goal was, quote, to be well off financially. And we can be generous and assume that for some, that meant having enough to feel secure, which of course has its own problems, but I'm not going down that radical rabbit hole just yet. The second most popular response, and just barely, which doesn't lend credence to my previous generosity, was, quote, having a great deal of money. This response was peaking right around the time that Justice League was debuting. If you're somehow surprised by this, it will soon make almost too much sense. Now, finally, we can get around to why you're all actually here. Justice League by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis 
is very, very much part of that media feedback loop I mentioned earlier. Rather than being a larger-than-life, nigh-Olympian tale of the struggles of gods, this book strives to be at once much more and much less. Namely, it strives to be human. And that's an admirable goal. Or it would be if the definition of humanity hadn't been so warped by the deliberate efforts of global capital, or, to put more simply, by the rich who wanted to get richer and knew two things. One, they'd have to fuck over more and more people to do it, and two, they'd better make a massive advertising push so that folks weren't mad at them when they did. If all this sounds tinfoil hatty, just remember, it actually happened. Time takes you beyond the news. Time flies, and you are there. Time cries, and lets you care. You understand the world we share. This week, time helps you understand the spoils of war, the diplomatic and human costs of victory in Lebanon and the Falklands. Retire and understand. Imperialism, war, colonialism, all of these things are the highest form of capitalism. And it doesn't just happen on quote-unquote foreign soil. It happens in your backyard. Things you know, things you love, are taken from you. They're taken from your community. They're taken from your network. They're taken from your understanding. And the chilies, the Applebee's, and whatever other bland corporate appendage you pass every day used to be a locally owned shop, or possibly where someone lived, or hell, even an empty plot of land that did nothing but exist and make people not feel the need to spend money. This brave new world of uber-commodification is the one in which Giffen and Demetrius were attempting to build relatable characters. And that, that is the entire reason that I'm talking to you today. That is why I'm here, 34 years later, vomiting into the microphone about capitalism and superheroes and pissed-on macaroni art because the idea of humanity that they were trying to have these characters ape was manufactured, was forced, was wrong. This Justice League, so very full of humans, manifests its, quote, human relationships not by having the characters support each other, not by having the characters grow together, not even by having the characters enjoy each other's company. People praise this book all the time for showing these superheroes as realistic, when this couldn't be further from the truth or farther off the mark. They snipe, they gripe, they connive. It is this dissonance, this alienation that I hope to illustrate to you all in the coming several episodes. It's not just greed. It's not just consumerism or materialism, again, the bad kind. It's not just exceptionalism and propaganda. It's the careful, 
and deliberate interweaving of it all together by powerful, globalizing forces, by industry and state, bedfellows then and now. And while this comic was by no means the only book to suffer from this, nor the only book to represent it, this comic has had staying power. It's a staple of the Justice League diet. That makes it useful and relevant to the end. What if we didn't create a story per se, but instead focused on the environment our characters would inhabit? The Justice League is a fraternity where heroes can take their masks off and let their hair down. They can be human for a change. In effect, be like us. Andrew Helfer, from the foreword to the collected volume of Issues 1-7. through Society, logically, cannot be compatible with personal well-being. It promotes and relies upon a value system that requires almost everyone living under it to not have their needs met. Anyone not dissatisfied is someone who's not purchasing. An easy example would be, of course, beauty and hygiene products. If people are satisfied with their appearance, and if the goalposts of acceptable attractiveness aren't constantly being moved, they won't continue to purchase an expanding assortment of, you know, stuff. But this trap of never-ending fulfillment through purchase isn't limited to physical goods. It seeps into the soul. It makes the relationships we have with others about conquest and transaction. What can we get out of knowing these people, what use can we make of the ones we love? Let's talk about the first new lineup of the League. I want to show you just what Giffen and Demetrius did to humanize their heroes. I've mentioned the first, and the worst, member of the new team that we're introduced to, Guy Gardner, the biggest red flag of a Green Lantern in the history of the hero. And there are actual Red Lanterns out there, not to mention a Green Lantern that goes on a murderous rampage, which I don't think Guy does, but I still don't like him nearly as much. Guy is a sleazy pig with a bowl cut and a, and a bad attitude. Guy is an over-the-top, hateful, misogynist, a racist, and an all-around shitty stand-in for the Republican Party. And that's not a slam on Republicans, by the way. Gardner actually professes his love for Ronald Reagan a scant few issues into the book. In fact, there are multiple times that Gardner invokes the name of his hero over the course of the series, notably in a concerning scene later in Justice League International, in which Gardner considers leveling an entire building on the rumor that drug dealers live there. We can only assume that Green Lantern Guy Gardner, galactic space cop, has no idea that it was Reagan himself who facilitated the influx of those drugs into the country thanks to Iran-Contra. Maybe the most sinister aspect of Gardner's character, however, and one we'll delve into later to be sure, 
is his role as Republican sin eater for the conservative flaws of just about every other character, with the possible exception of Mr. Miracle. Think about it like this. What's the fundamental difference between MSNBC and Fox News? Fox News would say, we need to go over there to that country and murder all of those racial slurs. MSNBC would respond, please, that's racist. We need to go over there and murder all of those people. And CNN would say something like, why don't we ask this general and former CIA member what their thoughts on foreign policy are? The next character we meet is the Black Canary, a formidable martial artist with the power of debilitating sonic screams. She's not in the book forever, and she doesn't make much of an impression beyond being a probably good faith token feminist. But I do mean token. Of all of the OG members of the first volume, she has the fewest lines of dialogue and basically no arc. I mean, really, just no arc at all. None of them have any arc, but it's weird with her. The only memorable Black Canary moments are when she beats the shit out of a Russian hero after being explicitly ordered not to, and when she demands that a flying hero not save her when she's falling because she doesn't want to be saved by a man, which, fair enough. The most recognizable character in this whole affair is Batman, of course, who was allowed to be in the book purely because Denny O'Neill, DC power player who will definitely come up in future episodes, took pity on poor Andrew Helfer and Keith Giffen. Batman will probably get his own series later on, but suffice it to say now that Batman, as part of any team, makes no sense, and I hate it, and I hate Batman. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com. The Blue Beetle is part of the Justice League, and for the entire first volume, it's unclear why. My best guess is that it was because he had a beetle-shaped plane and that Batman, whom I hate, we're also on Twitter, by the way, at callcomics, C-O-L-C-O-M-I-X, didn't want to share his bat-shaped one. All Blue Beetle does is mouth off, chicken out, and make silly voices, which in any other context would be great. He also complains about how much his stuff costs and envies other teammates when they get, quote, all the glory. Are we seeing some thematic cohesion here with the idea of alienation and the glorification of stuff? Were we to implement a death penalty for exceeding a per-page joke allowance, the Blue Beetle would be first be given a blindfold and a cigarette. Next up on the roster are the Martian Manhunter and Captain Marvel, now known as Shazam after a lengthy legal battle with Marvel. Nothing happens with them. They're fine. They suck here, but whatever. This brings us to Mr. Miracle, quite possibly the only team member I don't either loathe as a character or loathe the treatment of here. Scott Free, son of High Father of New Genesis, raised by Dark Side of Apocalypse, able to escape from any deadly situation with the help of his mysterious mother box somehow, is the normiest 
of all of the Justice League because he isn't a fucking monster. He's the only one with any sort of depth, any sort of dimension, any compassion whatsoever. Then we have Booster Gold, a con man from the future who uses stolen tech from his own time and a historical knowledge of ours to present himself as a superhero. He's also a strange case because he's one of the most explicitly exploitative characters in DC. I mean, he literally just does this for the fame and the fortune, and he stole shit to do it. But he's also one of the very few who's ever been given an arc that, that well, well, it's stuck. He started shit, he became not shit, and then they just kept him not shit. Pretty much the anti-Spider-Man. You can check us out on Instagram at Collective Action Comics. Although not technically a member of the League, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Maxwell Lord. I'm sure at least several of you were waiting to hear that name. Maxwell Lord is the mysterious, um, whatever the median is between benefactor and malefactor of the League. He's, of course a slick 80s corporateer with a secret master plan. Manipulative and slimy, Lord somehow has a way of getting people to do his bidding. But whose bidding does he do? It should be noted with just a twinge of irony that for all the talk of humanizing the League, there are only three characters in the original lineup whose real names are mentioned in the first volume. Scott Free, Guy Gardner, and Jean Jones, the Martian Manhunter. It should also be noted that there is only one female character whose real name is used in the entire book, and that's Big Barda, Mr. Miracle's wife, and I can only assume it's because she doesn't have a superhero name. I'd also like to take this moment to point out that, in the first volume at least, Black Canary has almost no ideas of her own, and the few times she does try to contribute, she's immediately brushed aside by Batman, whom I hate. So what happens in this comic? What villains are faced? Which adversities are overcome? Well, not a lot, only one, and Guy Gardner. Seriously, there's just not a lot of meat on this bone. Let's start with what happens, and through that, we'll cover the other two questions. The story begins with a newly reformed Justice League being called to the headquarters at Batman's request. Within minutes, Guy Gardner's sexist comments toward Black Canary set off a chain reaction of temper flares. And everyone present is almost literally at each other's throats. Of course, no one but Black Canary actually specifically calls Guy out for his misogyny. But what should we expect from our... heroes? Finally, after Batman and Dr. Fate arrive to calm things down, again, with no acknowledgement of the specifics of Guy's inappropriate behavior, the League meets officially for the first time. And, of course, a terrorist attack on a UN assembly immediately interrupts them. I gotta warn you folks, if you thought it was bad already, just wait. It's about to get so much worse. If you're listening to this podcast, I'd say it's safe to assume that you are on the left end of the political spectrum, or at least liberal, or left-adjacent, or possibly just related to me and being polite. Regardless, if I haven't made it clear yet, this is a leftist podcast 
full of wild leftist ideas, gibbered by a goofy leftist host. So you can imagine my despair and disdain, although not my surprise, when the first villains the newly formed League encounters are a terrorist group composed of, and I quote, former members of the Weathermen, the Black Panthers, and other 1960s radical groups, end quote, who take hostages at a UN assembly and demand an end to, hold on, I've got it here somewhere. Oh, poverty and oppression. It must be noted, of course, as with so many of my other notes about this, that none of the goons, none of the former members of the Black Panther Party that the League beats up in the ensuing tussle are black. It's okay to have our heroes beating up people who want an end to war and poverty and starvation and oppression, but God help the optics if the people they're beating up appear to match the race of the radical black power party they specifically said they were fighting. In fact, not a single character in the entire first volume is black. The only drawing of a black person in the whole thing is a portrait of Vixen in the League headquarters, and it's heavily implied that she's dead. Anyway, we're off to a real strong start here. As the League is fighting their way through the palest contingent of the Black Panther Party in the history of the United States, we cut away and are treated to the writer's truly heartfelt and sincere opinions that poverty and suffering are bad through the character of Dr. Light, the only non-adversarial person of color in the first volume, when she being held hostage in the UN, desperately inner monologues. He's insane. And yet, much of what he says is true. There are so many on this planet, in this country, who've been forgotten, who suffer in silence. And I'm with her up to now. But this, this lunacy, oh. isn't the answer. I don't know what it is, but it can't be this. I guess we can't expect Dr. Light to know that the UN, with its top-heavy structure that reinforces military and economic influence of the most aggressively colonialist countries in the world, very often under the sinister guise of human rights, is part of why people all over the world suffer in silence. But hey, she just works there. After the leader of the wacky rebels dies by suicide, and the bomb that he's wired to his heart fails to detonate, we learn that Maxwell Lord, who has been mysteriously popping up in tantalizing cutaways for the past few pages, was somehow, and for some reason, behind the whole thing as he reveals to the audience that he neglected to include the firing pin for the rebel leader's explosive. And we're left with the feeling of any sort of agency, worldwide or individual, being taken completely out of our hands and placed squarely under corporate control. That's it for issue one. How can issue two possibly top this? Anyone? Ideas? Did I just hear someone say patronizing liberal imperialism? 
because that's absolutely correct. Plus, we're going to sprinkle in just another tad of casual racism. That's right, folks. Next time, we're talking about Russia and the Middle East. If there are any kids listening to this today, we here at Collective Action Comics have a special message for you. Well, by now, I'm sure you've heard the fine folks of this program talk about some groups with some pretty funny names. Names like the Weathermen and the Black Panthers. Now, while these are also both comic books, the real-life Weathermen and Black Panthers are the true heroes of our story. They're swell, and so is Vandalizing Banks. So be sure to eat your vegetables, drink your Ovaltine, and come the holidays, don't forget to ask Mom and Dad for that shiny new bottle of accelerant. Tune in in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective Action Comics. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to the incredibly first episode of Collective Action Comics. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope that it was at least somewhat educational, both on the comics front and the leftism front. Um, Probably wasn't, but I hope you got some good giggles out of it. If you enjoyed the show, uh, you can find us uh, wherever podcasts are found. I assume I'm recording this before having uploaded it or even attempting to or knowing how. On all the ones, all the platforms that you can like, subscribe, and rate, please do so. It's apparently very important. I never thought I'd be one of those people saying those words in that order, but here we are. Um, Yeah, I put a lot of work into this, and I've had a lot of fun doing it. I'm very, very tired. Oh, yeah, okay, social media. You can interact with the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com. I wasn't joking about that. Uh, I'd love to hear any questions or suggestions or uh, especially corrections. There's a lot of information that I've had to look up and a lot of reading I've had to do, and not all of it was a lot of fun. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot that I got wrong, and I'd love to have uh, some feedback on that. And also, we're at Instagram at Collective Action Comics. Uh, we're on Twitter at Call Comics, C O L C O M I X. Hit us up. Oh, but most importantly, I'd like to talk about the plans for the future. As soon as I can get the website up and running, I am going to have all of the scripts for each of the episodes published there for free with all of the works that I'm citing. This is – a lot of it's for accountability because I want to make sure that people know that I'm getting my information from somewhere and also because I want to be sensitive to the fact that I might have people in the audience who have difficulty hearing or a hard time listening and would much rather read than uh, have to pay attention to something in their ears. Um, And I want to be as inclusive as possible. Otherwise, what's the point of being on the left, right? So thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. I sincerely hope you'll be along for the rest of the ride.